This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, and today we are going on one of the longest and most arduous treks that's ever been done. It took five years, most of it solo. It was 16,000 miles long. It crossed the entire world. This is an insane story, but it's also an incredibly funny one. You're going to gasp, you're going to be on the edge of your seat, and you are going to laugh your head off. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is Arjun Bogle. He set out from Cardiff, Wales in the UK with the goal of walking to Cardiff, New South Wales in Australia. He did it to raise money and awareness for water aid. Millions of people around the world have little or no access to clean water and have to walk miles in incredibly difficult conditions, often every single day, just to get enough water to survive. He called this project the Border Walk because these issues have no borders. They affect us all and we are all part of the solution. And you can find out more about the project at arjunbogle.co.uk. That's spelled A-R-J-U-N. B-H-O-G-A-L .co.uk and you can connect with Arjun on Twitter at ASBogle. Arjun began with his friend Kieran in 2012. They thought it would be a three-year, two-man journey, but it turned into a five-year, mostly one-man journey and one of the most difficult treks ever attempted. And what makes it so brilliant is that Arjun is not an extreme athlete or hardcore outdoorist at all. When he started, he barely had any outdoors experience or hiking experience. It was a preposterous notion, but he made it happen, not through physical endurance, though there was, of course, a lot of that. He made it happen through mental toughness, through a relentlessly optimistic, fun and open spirit that saw him make friends everywhere he went and survive near-death experiences that would have sent most of us running home with our tail between our legs. You're going to like this one. But before we set off, remember, exciting news. If you like this show and you think your friends might too, then you can win a $100 Amazon gift voucher and an exclusive Armchair Explorer t-shirt that even I don't have. All you need to do is go to refer.fm forward slash Armchair Explorer, type in your email, you'll get sent a link, and then all you need to do is share that with your friends and family. When they click it and subscribe, you will automatically get one referral. You don't have to do anything. It's automatically put to your name, and every referral is like a raffle ticket to win that $100 gift card. The more referrals, the more raffle tickets you get, the bigger the chance you'll have of winning. If you get 10 referrals, you'll get that t-shirt too. It's super simple. We'll do the draw once a month for the next couple of months so you can keep playing too. That link again is refer.fm forward slash armchair explorer. It's in the show notes too. So you can click on it right now. Literally go back to the episode page on whatever player you're using. Click that link and get set up while you listen to this episode. It literally takes two minutes and I really appreciate you helping to spread the word. 
Please also, let's connect on social and hang out at Armchair Explorer Podcast. You can sign up to the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, become a patron of the show for as little as $3 a month with a bunch of benefits added in. Details for all of this are on the website and the show notes too. But for now, get ready, strap on your boots, because we are about to walk across the world. We found out about a charity called WaterAid at a university, and we were reading about like families having to walk like tens of kilometers a day to get clean and safe water for them and their family. And I think maybe it must have been like maybe a week later, we were in the kitchen just discussing people that had kind of traveled around the world. And in my head, I kind of put it two and two together with water aid and was wondering like what it would be like to walk around the world. So we ended up giving it a bit of a Google in the kitchen of our uni house. And it turns out there's this one guy in the 60s who had tried it. He did it with his brother, but then apparently like he, his brother got shot and killed in Afghanistan. And then so he took his brother home to be buried, went back to Afghanistan and carried on from there. And we were just like, oh my God. And we were like, I wonder what he's doing now. So we like emailed him and we told him, oh, we're kind of thinking about maybe walking around the world. <laughs> and he was like the most American like kind of response you get. You can do it, man. <laughs> and I, But I think we were like, being that age, we were kind of really naive to the fact of like anything could go wrong. Like some of the sponsors wanted routes and like other things and information about places we were going to. And we were just like, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll just go this way and we'll do this. And we just like, kind of Google mapped it like freehand. And then the, <laughs> and then we were just like, oh, but this is going on in this country. This is, oh, but we'll be fine. We'll figure it out when we get there. So like there was a certain kind of element just of like naivety to the whole thing where we were just like, this is, it'll work out, it'll be fine. Like, look, if I were to do it again now, I'd be like, what are you thinking? <laughs> and that is the brilliant thing about this story. He really had no idea what he was doing, no plan, No map, no experience. He was just winging it. Yeah, that's right. Walking across the entire world, winging it. And that realization, how utterly unprepared he was, didn't kick in until, oh, about five minutes after he started. By the end of the year, we were outside Cardiff Castle going, right, we're leaving now. (laughs) And it was like the beginning of April. Like we'd had all these companies come on board and we were just like, Oh, now we have to do it. <laughs> it was such a surreal thing. We were just there with our rucksacks day one. We would leave the, like hugging our family, going, all right, we'll see you. And then we walk around the corner and we're just like, this bag is really heavy. <laughs> I need to take it off. <laughs> Behind this stone wall, we just like take a bag so and sit down and go, we've done like 500 meters. <laughs> what is going on? We have to do, at the time we thought it was going to be three years. We're like, we have to do three years of this, can't even do 20 minutes. <laughs> and we're like, oh God, all right, put them back on, off we go. And then we walked to our friend's house for the first night to go stay. But after that, it was a breeze. Well, sort of. Physically, it was brutal. He wasn't, in his own words, particularly outdoorsy. He hadn't done that much, but hiking before, yeah. They were covered in blisters. Their legs were in agony. They couldn't even lift their arms at the end of the day. 
But on the other hand, they discovered couch surfing and so they barely had to pitch a tent. They were just crashing at people's houses, having a laugh. He says as a kind of side note theme of Border Walk that he ended up drunk in a lot of strangers' houses. And it was like that, drinking, laughing, slowly adjusting to the physical demands of 20 plus miles a day with heavy packs that they made their way from Cardiff down to the southern coast of England, crossed the channel into France, then Belgium, Holland, and into Poland. Things were going great until they weren't. Europe was kind of like a relative oasis to the rest of like what we ended up going through. <laughs> there was like one incident in Poland where we ended up having our stuff stolen. But like, I say that that was our fault. Like, if you see a whole bunch of stuff on the side of the street and nobody's there with it, then you're going to get a bit curious. <laughs> but like, it ended up being like this. The, the Polish police officer was like, this is an international case. We will solve this. And we were like, fucking cheers, man. This is great. <laughs> and by the end of the day, they had all of our stuff back. Some guy just picked it up from the side of the street because we went into a restaurant in the gas station to like go <laughs> charge our stuff and like, you know, download podcasts and music and stuff to listen to. And he had just, <laughs> meanwhile, just taken our stuff and load it on a truck and just left. <laughs> but it, we made the news and everything and like we got emails from everybody in the country going, hey, if you're going to go into this city, visit me, stay with me. I just want your experience of Poland to be a great experience. And we were like, cheers, man. That's really nice of you. Like everybody there was so friendly and yeah, it was crazy. He's such a nice guy. It's ridiculous. Even when he gets all his worldly possessions stolen, he puts that on him, not the thief who was just being curious. And then somehow he turns it round to becoming a minor Polish celebrity. And this is a theme throughout the whole trip. You get back what you put in. How you see people is how they see you. If you see danger and threats everywhere, people see that danger in you. If you can laugh and see the goodness in people, even the thief who steals your bag, then the world will see that goodness in you and welcome you with open arms. And as we'll see, it was that spirit, that special kind of mental toughness that would see Arjun through far more challenging situations than this. The world, he says, is 99.99% filled with amazingly kind and generous people. This was the easy part. It was about to get hard, really hard. And it started with the desert. In terms of getting hard, it was probably as soon as we switched from Russia into Kazakhstan, into Central Asia, that was kind of like where the level of difficulty increased. <laughs> Purely because we were not ready for a desert. And as soon as you leave Russia, literally, it's Russia, the border, a desert. <laughs> Russia seems to have planned that border very strategically. <laughs> so yeah, we, there was one roadhouse, kind of one kind of gas station, I suppose, at the border. We kind of filled some stuff, got some water, queued up in customs. We're getting stared at by Russians and Kazakhs and uh, slowly made our way into the desert, hopefully to be seen again. He was entering the Kazakh steppe, a vast arid region of sparse grassland and shrub that extends more than 1,300 miles from the Caspian Sea to the Altai Mountains. And because of unlucky timing and somewhat lackadaisical planning, they would be crossing it in summer, with temperatures at their peak reaching more than 110 degrees. They suffered dysentery. They didn't shower for three months. They had to walk hundreds of miles between towns, pulling all they had with them. 
They ran out of water. They nearly died. They were thirsty the entire time, which, Arjun says, connected him in some ways to the whole reason of why they were doing this. But even in one of the starkest, most desolate places in the world, there was kindness. And even here, Arjun found the funny side. It was, what, like six, seven months of just struggle city, just nosebleeds, panic attacks. And it was just atrocious in terms of like, there's nothing higher than your ankle in the whole of <laughs> whole of the, the Kazakh steppe <laughs> to get some shade. Every now and again, there's like a, like a bus stop for some reason where there are never, you never see any buses. <laughs> and it's just every now and again, a truck will go past you and stop and go, you know you're going to die, right? <laughs> we're like, no, no, we're professionals, we've got this. <laughs> And they're just looking at you like a complete idiot and you're like, can I also have some water please? And he's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I was like, right, thanks. We were, slept in a tent on the side of the road, well, what was a, kind of a road. And uh, in the morning we just heard this massive lorry pull up and we're like, oh my God, it's right next to the tent. And you just heard somebody get out. And a guy opened the tent door and got in and sat down. He took his shoes off, just got in, sat down, and started having a chat with us. And we were like, what are you, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I brought breakfast. <laughs> he goes, I saw you last week. <laughs> so on my way back, I thought I'd bring you breakfast. And we were like, all right, see, all right, yeah, all right. <laughs> Cheers, I suppose. <laughs> just us going, huh? <laughs> Eventually, six months of unbelievable hardship later, they reached the end of the steppe and the beginning of the mountains, the tail end of the Himalayas that would take them deep into Central Asia. But they'd mistimed it. They'd crossed the desert in summer, and now they would have to cross the mountains in winter. But it sort of wasn't their fault. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. We would have been just there before everything kind of kicked off, like in terms of weather, like before it was snowing and everything like that. I would have been there before like the winter time, but it was just because we end up jail and like all the visas and stuff like that. It kind of ended up prolonging the stay in Kyrgyzstan. We're in uh, in Bishkek in the capital city, Kyrgyzstan, and we're just we're trying to get our visas for India and Pakistan because they're the, kind of the hardest visas that we were looking at to try and get, and they would, they would take the longest. And then we got to the city, and then we had some interactions with police officers, and they were like, "Where are your 
papers and we were like, oh, they're at the embassy to getting our visas, but we have like a passport copy. And they would just look at us like we're idiots and they were like, all right, well, come with us. And then they kind of ended up like interrogating us for the whole day. One of them like asking us if, if we were MI6 and st random stuff like this. And it just got to the point where they're like, right, we're going to hold you until we can get your passports. And we were just like, oh, okay. So you're going to put us in a different hostel. <laughs> That's what we thought at the time. They drove us to this building and ushered us in and got processed and everything and entered into this kind of courtyard area full of other buildings and we got taken into this other building. We were like, all right, well, so it doesn't look like they're putting us in a hostel, but maybe they're putting us in our own room. <laughs> and we followed this guy up these stairs and through these metal doors and everything's clanking and you can hear everybody around and you can hear like people fighting or people laughing or joking and stuff and talking and then you he opens this door number three is the door he opens it and in the room is just darkness with this one window to the frosted window to the outside like maybe like two foot by one foot window and 18 other men sitting on the floor <laughs> and i'm just oh, great all right and at that moment you're just like oh wow okay so all right, it's not what I thought at all. What do we do now? So I was like, all right, we go in, we sit in. It was like a three meter by three meter room in the dark with one frosted window, a hole in the corner of the floor as a toilet and 18 other men sat around with us and we just had to kind of pick a spot and sit on the floor. You get one meal a day and you get like a, like a watery soup and some bread and then you get put back in the room and you get to go out for five, 10 minutes and walk in a circle where we just kept asking them if they could call the embassy and they were just like, oh. They would like strip search us and then we were part of a lineup. And I was like, if somebody picks the one Indian guy and the one white guy, we're screwed. Cause how'd you get that wrong? We're the only two in the building. <laughs> You can just imagine poor old Arjun and his mate Kieran standing in a Kyrgyzstani lineup and just being like, what the hell am I doing here? No one in this lineup looks anything like me. Half of him must have been thinking, I'm screwed. And the other half, knowing him, was probably giggling uncontrollably. He says his first thought walking into that prison cell with 18 hardened Kyrgyzstani criminals was, this is going to make a great blog post. But... You get back what you put in, and he ended up, as he says, playing the British card, hamming up the accent, and making friends with everyone. But it wasn't easy. He was there about a week, walking circles in the day, shivering at night, until eventually a woman from the embassy turned up and rescued them. After that, most people would call it a day. The gravity of the situation, the lack of planning, must have dawned on them. And in fact, his walking buddy, Kieran, did call it a day. He'd had enough. He was very sensibly, to be fair, going home. Not Arjun. He carried on, and that meant from now on, he would be on his own. But that was still not the worst thing that happened to him, because after he got out of jail, after Kieran left and he was on his own, he realized he'd have to face the mountains in winter, with temperatures plummeting to 35 degrees below zero. And looming on the horizon after that was the sobering realization that he would have to cross Afghanistan in the middle of a war zone. When I found out like I was going to be going to Afghanistan, Everybody started showing me these videos of like things blowing up on the side of the street. I'm just like, well, thank you, I suppose. Like, this is not helping. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, a lot of anxiety leading up to Afghanistan. And then crossing the border was even more terrifying. The only reason I got through is because one, I'm brown. And two, I gave the guy $100 at the border <laughs> and was just able to go through. And so like, it was just all a bit nerve wracking to begin with. 
you know, there was an actual like tumbleweed in one of the streets and guys stood in the entrance of like shops with AK-47s and you just think to yourself, all right, well, this is not going to be great. And I don't even buy food in that place because I'm just like, I'm so scared at the time. And so I just keep on walking, I leave and I get to this checkpoint and it turns out there's checkpoints every like five or six kilometers in Afghanistan, or there was at the time. And I got to a, a spot where I thought, all right, I might just sleep here. And it was a, a close to my first checkpoint and there was just some young military guys. They were like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, I'm just walking. They were like, in Afghanistan. I'm like, yeah, look, I'm, I mean, I know it's a bad idea. I'm just trying to get to the other end. He was like, all right, well, are you going to camp? I'm like, yeah. He goes, all right, well, come, come with us. And this is all kind of in like in broken English. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I went into the military checkpoint with him and he was like, all right, you can sleep here. They had like rooms of bunk beds and stuff. They were literally maybe, they were Afghan military and they were like maybe in their, in their 20s. And they were just like hanging out with the guys. <laughs> just kind of had some drinks. They fed me and he took me, he was like, do you want to sleep inside or outside? And I was like, well, I mean, you're really nice, but like, I've never met you guys before. So I'm probably going to sleep outside in my tent. He was like, yeah, that's fine. Uh, in my bivy. So he was like, all right, that's fine. You can sleep up on the top of the sand pit next to the turret. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I say, we climb up the sandbags to the side of the entrance to the to the checkpoint. And he says, all right, you can sleep here. And there's just a guy with, next to, on a, like a turret gun sat next to me. He goes, don't worry, no Taliban here. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. And it's lucky they did, because aside from the Taliban mines, stray bullets, you know, things you don't want to have to contend with while camping, there's something else he hadn't even thought of. In the morning when I was leaving, they cut a stick for me because they're like, have you had you have you seen any dogs yet? I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> he goes, yeah, Afghan dogs are terrifying. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, oh, they're like fighting dogs. So their necks are like this big and their heads are this small. I was like, oh God. He was like, don't worry, we'll get your stick. So he like cut a stick off a tree and was like, started shaving it down. He goes, all right, if you see a dog, just hit it. I was like, all right, I'm probably not going to hit a dog, but yeah, all right, cool, yeah, yeah, cheers, man, cheers, appreciate it. <laughs> I started leaving and I saw my first dog. I shit you not, they're terrifying. They're, like, do you know how dogs like nap, like kind of like bark at you, but will stay maybe like three or four foot away from you and just bark at you. And, you, and if you come towards them, they run away. These dogs do not stop when they're running at you. They just keep coming towards your ankles. And <laughs> you're just like, oh God, and you end up having to hit a dog to get away from you. It's crazy. They look like wolves. And you, they're just like, people own them. Like, there'll be like a guy with a cart walking past me the other way, and he'll have a dog, and the dog will just go fucking mental. And then like, you see the fur come up and his tail, like, and like, normally, I'm used to dogs that will stop like three or four feet away from you and carry on barking. You're like, oh, shut up, all right. These guys go for your ankles. <laughs> Despite the dangers, Afghanistan was, Arjun says, for the most part, an incredibly friendly place. He passed through small towns. People would wave him over and say hi and do selfies and give him water and snacks to take with him for free. His initial feelings of anxiety slowly faded and the miles passed quickly. This wasn't nearly as bad as he thought it was going to be. Until it was. I was told to get off the streets every night, off the roads at least every night, because they just became the property of the Taliban. So that was from the guys on the, the first night I stayed with in Afghanistan. And I was like, all right, cool, that's fine, I can do that. So I would just get off like maybe 500 metres off the road and just kind of set up my camp. And I set up my camp in a like, dried up riverbed that night. And I was on the phone to my dad, just doing a quick check-in to tell him I'm okay and stuff. And I saw a car pull up on the road in front of me. So I was like, oh, 
I don't want them to see the glow of the phone, so I'm going to put the phone down. My dad said, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. As soon as I put the phone down, seven men with AK-47s came running from every direction around me with AK-47s just pointing them at me and screaming stuff at me in Pashto. And I was just like, uh, oh shit. And they searched through all my stuff and they put me in a four by four flanked with two guys either side of me with guns and we drive for 40 minutes and I'm just like, oh, all right, this is it. And I was like, fuck. And there's this sinking feeling in your stomach and you're just like, oh. It's like being winded and you're just like, fuck this. All right, so this is how it ends. But it wasn't how it ended because it turned out, believe it or not, his kidnappers were actually his rescuers. They drive him for 40 minutes. Arjun's freaking out the entire way. He's a hostage or he's dead. He's definitely not getting out of this. And then they shove him out the door. He looks up and he's in a military checkpoint. The Afghan military. The people fighting against the Taliban. They said that the reason they'd come to get me was because the Taliban had found out about a British national that was walking across the region. So they came to get me before the Taliban had got me. And I was just like, you could have just said that. You, you, could, you didn't have to, it was such a traumatic experience but as a rescue operation. <laughs> like you just like literally dragging me <laughs> to, to the side of the road, putting me in a car. You could have just said, hey, all right, you're all right, mate, come with us. <laughs> it's like, there's no fight here. I would have gone, all right, yeah, cool, let's go. But on the plus side, he did become friends with a few Afghan generals who he's still Facebook buddies with. Lots of selfies with guns and mountains and nothing much else, apparently. But he was left with two options. Either they escort him to the Pakistani border or they fly him home. And there was no way Arjun was flying home. He turned the corner. He was facing the right way now towards Australia. And even though he had thousands of miles to go, he knew now that whatever happened to him, he would see it through. He crossed Pakistan, India, and into Myanmar. He walked down to Southeast Asia, Thailand, Malaysia, and Singapore. He was almost there. I felt like I was on the home straight. Like, one of the countries that I really love, Singapore, and it's just because, like, I got to Singapore and then I ended up being in the newspaper and I just kind of put out there on the newspaper, I was like, anybody want to, because Singapore's not that big, it's like 30 kilometers wide, and I was like, if anybody wants to walk with me across Singapore, I'm going to spend the day walking across Singapore. And a whole gang of people joined me to walk for the day. It was awesome. It was like families reaching out to me, just random people. And we just kind of all walked across Singapore together (laughs) for one day. That was amazing. It was literally from one end to the other. And then we was like the most furthest point of Asia in Singapore, just because like there's a little island just off the island that is still attached officially. And so I got there and I'm like, all right, well, like, you know, that's awesome. <laughs> and yeah, it was like, next stop, Indonesia. Well, good. But yeah, it was such an amazing experience, like walking. And I think that's one thing that I really like about Boardwalk as well, is being able to have people join me along the way as well. So when Kieran went home, it got lonely, but like I also met a bunch of people, like the people that walked with me for like a month or two weeks, uh, a week. Like like sometimes it was families that would walk with me. Sometimes it was just individuals. And a Welsh guy joined me. Uh, I lost a toenail after two weeks and decided to go home. <laughs> It was so funny. He's a champion. And then there was like a Portuguese lady that walked me for a month through Myanmar of all places. Yeah, so I've had like so many interesting people come and join me and stuff. And I think that's one of the good aspects. It was an adventure that you could join. Like you could just go, all right, I'm going to walk with you for free. And I would never say no, because like, who am I to take this experience from somebody like, you know, it's only walking. You want to walk with me? Let's do it. 
From Singapore, he headed south across Indonesia, got to Bali and took a plane to Perth. He was in Australia. He'd made it. Well, not quite. Perth is in the far southwestern corner of Australia. Cardiff, New South Wales, his final destination, is on the east coast, two and a half thousand miles away. And there was another desert in between. Mentally, it was going to be the toughest stretch, the last hard slog. His body was falling apart. He didn't know how he was going to do it. And then he got a phone call. When I got to Perth, I was there, kind of held up in a hostel in Perth, just like recuperating my back and my my ankle, my foot. And Kieran reached out and said that he wanted to come out. And I was like, yeah, awesome. Like, like, let's finish this how we started. And so he came back out. And within a month, we were back off again across Australia. And it ended up taking maybe, I think it was like six, seven months to, to cross Australia. Yeah, we went through like another desert and like, you know, the, the Nullarbor and from Perth to Cardiff, New South Wales. And that's when Kieran finished and went home. But like, I think it was just a case of like me not really wanting to give it up. <laughs> it become like a way of life for five years. And so I was kind of like, I just did an extra 15K to the beach. Cause then I was like, oh, and then I'll just do coast to coast in Australia. I'll just keep on going. And then I would got to the city and then I would go for long walks during the day. I'm like, I've got to stop this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> He kept on walking. He got to the end of a five-year, 16,000-mile trek over some of the hardest terrain in the world. And instead of throwing his hands up the air and cheering, ripping his boots off in triumph, a primal roar of achievement echoing through the city heard for miles. He went, do you know what? I reckon I might as well do another 10 miles. And off he went to the beach. And that is what I love about our gym and what I love about this story too. He's just an ordinary bloke who had a crazy idea and the mental toughness and positivity to see it through against all the odds. And if he can do it, so can we. He started the walk for WaterAid and raising awareness and money for them and the plight of millions of people around the world who don't have access to clean water. That was the point of all of this. But for him personally, it also became about something else, something incredibly important, something we all crave, but sometimes forget about in the busyness of our lives. He wanted a story. I have this idea of one day having children and being able to tell them, uh, or them coming to me and telling me that they can't do something, like whether it be physical or like educational or something. And for me to have this story where I could tell them like, of two guys who came up with this stupid idea in a kitchen, and through one way or another ended up actually getting it done. And I love the idea of having that story to be able to tell them and go, look, it doesn't, you know, you don't need to be special to achieve something special or like, you know, it's not a case of like, you know, you're born with it. You literally just have to work at it and it is just a, a progressional thing. You just put one foot in step of the, <laughs> literally in our case, one foot in front of the other and you just keep going. I would see people on the road and stuff who would stop and like, you know, be generous with their time and their money and their conversation and sometimes even a place to sleep for the night. Buddha always taught me that I think given the opportunity, 99.9% of human beings are wonderful people. This journey is a journey that was stitched together by thousands of people. Like it needed thousands of people around the world to like reach out and without those people, it just wouldn't have been possible because I couldn't have done all those things on my own. Like it really is just a journey made up of people that I've met along the way. Like, there's not any other greater part about this journey than the people that I met. 
Arjun found his story. He walked across the entire planet. He was put in jail and kidnapped. He survived deserts and dangerous dogs. But what he remembers about it, the moral of his story, what he will tell his grandchildren when they sit on his knee, is that none of it would have been possible without the kindness of the people he met along the way. You get back what you put in. Each of us, whether we know it or not, is writing our own story every day. How we live, what we do, the way we treat people, the adventures we have, the mountains we climb, the Kyrgyzstani prisons we... Well, maybe not that. Our stories are examples to other people. So make sure, just like Arjun, you dream big, dare to do it, and make your story something worth listening to. Thank you, Arjun. Thanks for taking us on this adventure. Remember, you can connect with him, read the blog, and find out more about Border Walk at arjunbogle.co.uk. And you can connect with Arjun on Twitter at asbogle. If this episode inspires you to find out more about how you can be a part of helping to provide clean water to vulnerable people all over the world, then head to wateraid.org. Water is life, and this is a fixable problem. So let's be part of that solution. Remember also, you can refer friends to the show and win prizes. Just go to refer.fm forward slash armchair explorer, enter your email and share the link with your friends. It's that simple. You can win a $100 Amazon gift card. And if you get 10 friends to sign up, that exclusive armchair explorer t-shirt as well. I want one of those. So that's all we have time for. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this community. And remember to look for those crazy adventures wherever they may be. Go out there and write your story how you want it to be heard. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.